Welcome to Vancouver Opera Offstage. I'm your host, Les Dalla, Chorus Director and Associate Conductor at Vancouver Opera. Join me for this podcast as we connect with opera experts, artists, staff, and others to explore the world of opera on and off the stage. We are honored to share our stories on the unceded homelands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Good afternoon and welcome to the podcast. My guest today is a member of the Order of Canada, a member of the Order of British Columbia, was awarded the Queen Elizabeth II Golden Jubilee Medal, has an honorary degree from Simon Fraser University, has sat on juries for competitions and arts organizations across the world. It is my great pleasure to welcome artistic director and founder of the Vancouver Recital Society, Leela Getz, to the show. Welcome, Leela. Hello, Les. It's great to be with you. I always cringe when I hear all those things. I'm just Leela. I like that. Well, it's a very, very impressive list, not to downplay your incredible accomplishments. And of course, the amazing Recital Society that you set up, which is really one of the only ones in North America, am I right? Completely dedicated to recital format. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, we have really, we've made it into the big time. We're one of the major recital presenters in North America. I mean, we don't have the big budgets of Washington Performing Arts or, you know, some of them, but uh, they certainly, when it comes to finding new talent, they all come and ask for advice here. That's our passion. Yes. It's finding young up and coming performers. And it has been since the very beginning. And I've just been lucky. Well, the luck only favors those who are brave and also who have a vision, which you clearly have always had a very strong vision. I'd like to actually quote the first sentence of your bio in the Recital Society and then kind of turn it over to you for comment. I just think it's such a great opening sentence. As founder and artistic director of the Vancouver Recital Society, Leela Getz has presented the Canadian and or Vancouver debut performances of some of the world's most brilliant and respected young musicians, and against all odds, has steadily built a diverse and loyal audience for the recital concert form that doomsayers had proclaimed out of vogue. Well, you've been doing it now for just over 40 years, so I would say you have made it, as you said before, but this must have been an incredibly daunting thing with not much on the horizon, to use as, as an example. Tell us how this all happened. Well, let's, uh, first of all, let me tell you, I think I have a couple of philosophies in life. And one is, if you don't know something, the most important thing is to know where to go for help. And when I actually launched the VRS, I mean, I knew about the production side of concerts, and we'll get to that in a second. But I knew nothing about marketing and budgeting and all that sort of thing. I was lucky that I was married to a lawyer who was a corporate lawyer. So he did the incorporation and didn't charge. And in those days, in the early days, um, I persuaded Bill Millard to allow us to use the then newly built arts club on Granville Island. So Bill was on our board and there were a couple of law professors and Mrs. Edwina Heller. And that's how the thing got going. But anyway, so how I kind of fell into it was I grew up in South Africa. And I was very lucky because right from the age of five, when I first started taking music lessons, 
I had a remarkably wonderful music teacher who really imbued a sense of love for music. And, you know, she taught me music. She didn't teach me only to play the piano. So she was fantastic. And then I studied music as a subject at school. And from then I went to University of Cape Town and did a degree in music, always with the intent of becoming a teacher. I wanted to be like her. So what happened along the way to give me the balls to do this was, first of all, my mother had a sister who was very into theater. And she had done a number of theater productions. She started out as an actress and then she turned into a producer. And then she went over to London one day in the 50s and she went to Regent's Park in London where they do open air Shakespeare. And she had found a park in Cape Town called Maynardville, which had a very natural sort of setting. And she decided it'd be fantastic to do Shakespeare there. So now this is 1953, 54. And so she and a friend persuaded the man who did the productions for Regent's Park, whose name was Leslie French, to come out to South Africa, take a look at Maynardville and decide if... Anyway, so she started Maynardville. Maynardville was like Stratford is in Canada. It was just a place that was what well, was synonymous with Shakespeare. And then, of course, as time went on, they did other productions. So what I learned from her was she was a complete twit when it came to anything to do with money. She was passionate and she was an imaginative. My mother was the one who had the money brains. Anyway, so when I founded the VRS, I always had this thing, you know, if my aunt could do it, why can't I do it? So that's number one. Number two, when I was a student at university, I got a summer job at the biggest classical music record store, because there were records in those days, which was called Hans Kramer Music. And Hans Kramer, he and his wife were from Germany. They'd come, you know, before Hitler took over. And they opened this record store. And in addition to the record store, it was only classical music. They formed an organization called the Cape Town Concert Club, and they would bring the who's who in the music world to South Africa, because in those days, artists still did come to South Africa. And it was before they started boycotting. So at those concerts, well, first of all, I used to help sell tickets because they sold tickets in the record store. I was the page turner, and when I wasn't required to turn pages, I would sell programs. And then generally, they would take me for dinner after the concert with the musicians. So I really had a bloody good grounding in that area of things, the production area. And they were a huge influence on my life, these two. The other thing, by the way, about my aunt, which I forgot to tell you, was before she launched this venture called Maynardville, she worked for an organization called African Theatres. And African Theatres in South Africa was like, here, Hugh Pickett. And they brought all sorts of things to South Africa. And I remember one day my aunt came to pick me up from a music lesson, and she had a woman in the car with her. 
And the woman said to me, oh, what's that? Is that a Bach album? And I said, yes. And she said, well, which piece are you learning? And I said, well, it's this Gavotte. And she said, oh, I know. I used to play that when I was young. Do you know who it was? It was Elizabeth Schwarzkopf. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. She was on a tour of South Africa. My other story about my aunt, when she worked for African theaters. So Laurence Olivier came out to South Africa and she decided one day she'd like to take him out to a place called Hermanus, which is 80 miles out of Cape Town. And it's a very, very beautiful seaside resort. So my aunt, who drove but didn't actually own a car, went to my father, who owned a Chevrolet, which had a rumble seat. It was an old Chevrolet. My dad had bought it secondhand, and it had a radio in it. And when he bought the car, the radio didn't work. You know, he assumed the radio would never work. Anyway, to cut a long story short, she borrowed the car from my father, and she set out on the drive to Hermanus with Sir Laurence Olivier. Well, he wasn't Sir in those days. And about an hour into the drive, they hit a pothole in the road. And guess what happened? The radio started blaring. And it just blared and blared. And finally, she said, look, we better pull over. She turned the car off. And the radio, of course, stopped. And she started the car up. And the radio never, ever worked again. So anyway, that's the things that happened so when I came to Vancouver as a newlywed, I first had to learn to cook and to housekeep, which I didn't have a clue about because I grew up in South Africa. And by the way, in those horrible, horrible days of apartheid, and I thought I'd teach because I had a wonderful teaching job at a boys' school in South Africa. And I taught piano and choir and music appreciation. But here I wasn't qualified to teach other subjects. So I started teaching privately at home, which was fine. But, you know, you start at four in the afternoon and go through the dinner hour. And then I had my first child and he was colicky. So he'd be sitting on our portable dishwasher in the kitchen with my husband rolling the dishwasher back and forth while I was giving a lesson in the living room. And it became quite stressful. So I said, OK, I'm going to stop. If you're not enjoying teaching, then you mustn't do it. So I, I thought, okay, I'll stop and then I'll go back to it. But you know what? I lost my confidence and I never went back to it. And then I had my second child, Sarah. And at that point, I realized that I wasn't cut out to be a housewife. So I decided to start the VRS. And everybody said I was crazy. It's quite amazing. And I knew that there'd be some big names popping up in this conversation. I did not expect Sir Laurence Olivier to be one of them. So <laughs> you, I'm sure, have a myriad of tales to tell. And you really, you must write a book is what I'm trying to say. I can only imagine all of the stories. Well, with regards to VRS, yes. you really have this amazing formula of presenting, you know, world-class established artists and introducing the public also to young up-and-comers. What surprised me, too, as I was researching, I didn't realize that some of these people who I'm thinking of as these, you know, great world class, beloved performers were unknown when you first brought them, like Sir Andras Shiv. Yes. 
like Yefim Bronfman. Yeah. That I didn't know. I thought they were already sort of on the mark. So anyways, you have an incredible nose for sniffing out talent, obviously. And I would love if you can kind of tell us a little bit about what it is, the format that you've come up with. But how do you know when you've tapped into somebody or Chilia Bartoli? I mean, these were some major, major discoveries. Okay. So first of all, I think there's something very important. I realized this a couple of years ago when I was involved in a conversation with another arts organization where the artistic side of the organization was complaining that the marketing side was holding back on adventurous kind of programming because the theory was it wouldn't sell tickets. And I'd never really thought about that before. And it took about six hours for it to sink in. And then I realized that is the essence of the non-failure. I hate to say success. I'm terrified of that word of the VRS because I have never had a marketing person or a board of directors who has ever said to me, you can't do that because it won't sell tickets. So the VRS was actually born on the notion of taking risks. I mean, we brought only in those early years, only artists who people had never heard of in Vancouver, and Andra Schiff in 1981 made his Canadian debut for us. And, you know, I mean, this is a friendship now, 41 years that goes back. And so, okay, how do I find them? Well, in the case of Andras, so I founded the VRS. Well, obviously, it got incorporated in 1979, but the first concert was in September of 1980, a Russian pianist called Boris Berman. It was a wonderful concert, I gather, but I was so nervous I spent half the evening in the bathroom. <laughs> and once I started this series, my dearest friend from the University of Cape Town who lived in London, she had gone to the Leeds competition and that was the year that Andras didn't win. I'm trying to remember who won. Oh, was it Murray? It was the same year that Mitsuko Uchida entered and Andrash entered. And so this girlfriend wrote me a letter and she said, I've just heard the most unbelievable pianist. His name is Andrash. You must watch out for him. So, you know, I had Musical America in those days and I looked in Musical America, saw that he was managed by Columbia artists contacted the manager and that's how he came. So Andrash, I hadn't even listened to before I booked him because I so, so trusted my friend June. Oh, that's amazing. And furthermore, that concert at the Arts Club was one of the greatest concerts I've ever been at in my life. It was absolutely extraordinary. One of the things I had been so looking forward to back in 2020 was the 40th anniversary recital where he's going to play the Goldberg Variations, Sir Andras, at the uh, Chan Center. And everything shut down, what, a week before that, uh, two weeks, not even two weeks before the date of that. So amazing. Well, it's going to happen on the 20th of October 2022. 
oh, nice. I, hang on. That's going to be a later question of the preview. So don't give everything away. But I'm so, so pleased to hear that. Well, no, but that's the next season. That's oh, okay. Busy. Yes, yes. Ah. Oh, well, well, then thank you for the, what do they call it? The preview of coming attractions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. One of your main goals with the series has been to break down the perceived walls around classical music and the belief that it is a slowly dying elitist art form. Can you talk about some of the initiatives that you have introduced over the years to make music more accessible to everyone? Well, I mean, of course, we do the usual things uh, we have. I mean, the, the frightening thing really is the age of the audiences. But I think there's one of the things, if I go 75,000 feet up into the stratosphere and look down, if you look at the audiences for chamber music, whether it be London or New York or wherever, they're all the same. They're all middle-aged and getting on. I mean, the Whitmore Hall audience looks exactly like the Vancouver Recital Society audience. And we're all, of course, hell-bent on trying to find ways to get younger people to come to the concerts. I certainly don't have the answers, all of the answers. I think we have had some programs at the VRS. We have a youth club where kids can come for $10 or $12, or now maybe it's $15, brought by grandparents or parents or aunts or whatever. And they can have the prime seats for those prices because I think the last thing you want is to stick a kid a million miles away from the stage and have them have a somewhat negative, non-inspiring experience. And then we would send them little books about what to look for with puzzles. And then we also have this RU35, but that's trying to entice younger audiences. But I think the fact that we also bring instrumentalists who are not mainstream, like, you know, we, <laughs> we've we had a recital by an accordionist. We've had a recital with a trumpet player. We had booked a recital, a trombone recital for last year, which actually had already sold 500 tickets and we had to close down. He is coming next. So I think the fact that we bring instruments that are not necessarily mainstream, and I also think for me, the fundamental thing about a concert is I want people to go away feeling better than they did when they came into the hall. It's all about the ability of the instrumentalist or instrumentalists to communicate with the artists. It's all about communication and goosebumps. And, and you know that communication, because it's a recital, is a two-way thing. The audience, without realizing it, plays an enormous part in the success of a performance. I think people are much more aware of that now, having gone through COVID, where, of course, people were creating videos or doing live streams with no one in the hall. And I was involved in a couple of those. And it was the strangest thing. It's such a tangible thing, the absence of other human beings there to enjoy, to partake, to share in that. It is a two-way street, as you say. And I would also like to quote something that, again, is in your VRS bio that I just love. Success in the arts shouldn't be measured in dollars and cents. Success is what music does to the human spirit. 
if audiences come out of a concert feeling better than when they went in, that's success. And boy, is that ever true. Exactly. Because, I mean, it's a priceless experience that happens there. And let's face it, we're prisoners of time. So for those moments when we can step out of the ordinary into a world, talked about the fact that the concert by Sir Andras Schiff back in 1981, you know, you still remember. And it's those moments that, of course, with music, the magic of it, that's what we live for. So It's magic. You see, that's what I look for always, is magic. When I'm on a jury for a competition, that's the only thing I'm looking for. You know, there are professionals there who can say, oh, well, they missed the 45th note in the 18th bar or whatever, and they didn't play that chord, but hell with it, I'm looking for the magic. But you know how you measure, for me, me, how I measure the success of a concert is by silence. And... For me, when a concert ends and the audience is sitting in rapt, silent attention, that's worth $90 million for me. That's, I think, silence is so important. It's an essential part of music. Here we are talking about music, but it's the silences in music and it's the silences that surround it that are what bring it to life. Well, I can give you a very specific illustration on my journey of reinforcing that idea. We brought a wonderful young Russian pianist, well, he's now in his, I suppose, 40s, called Boris Gilbert to Vancouver. He played at the Playhouse, and the last piece in the program was the Liszt Sonata. Now, I'm not a Liszt fan, but that's okay. If the Liszt Sonata is really well played, I'll tolerate it. Anyway, Boris walked out onto the stage and he sat down at the piano and he put his hands on his lap and he sat and he sat and he sat and my heart started pounding and pounding and he sat and then he played the first chords of the piece. And I mean, it was an incredible performance. And afterwards, I said, okay, so what the hell was that all about? Oh, he said, that's the Richter trick. You sit down and you count to 100 before you start the first notes because, you know, they're very low notes on the piano. So that it actually sounds like the piece begins with silence. The music comes out of the silence. And... It's extraordinary. I mean, you know, I keep saying to people, when you buy a ticket to a live performance, you are taking a risk yourself because nobody's ever going to guarantee that it'll knock you sideways. You know, we put on 24, 22 concerts. You do so many operas a year. We all hope that they'll be wonderful, but, you know, we're all human. And sometimes a pianist or a violinist can have a migraine in the afternoon or they can have a fight with their boyfriend or whatever. There are mitigating circumstances and they may not be at their peak. So I say, buy a subscription. You can be sure that two or three of them will blow you away. And some will be wonderful, but I can tell you one thing. The worst, worst crime when you go to a live performance is boring. 
I'd rather sit through an absolutely deplorably bad concert or performance because it gets me all revved up, whereas boring is a crime and adequate is a crime. I don't have any time for adequate. How very true. Somebody says, oh, it was very nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, you brought back a memory. I get this would have been in the late 90s. Hélène Grimaud was playing yes. at the Playhouse and yes. she had a fever of 102 yes. or something. You and you, I do remember that because I was a big fan of her playing and you came out and said, look, just want to tell you, you know, please understand this. And then she started with the Bach Busoni Chacon, and it was amazing. And I think there was Opus 110 of Beethoven or something like that on the program. I can't remember the whole thing, but I think I went up to her afterwards and just said, you know, thank you for this incredible recital. I have no idea how you even did that feeling like that. But you're right. We're all human. But that's the amazing thing, too. People draw on their superpowers. Yes. Yes. It's amazing. My God, I remember that. You know, she actually, we had a subscriber who was a, a doctor. and. He took her home with him. She stayed with his family for a week because she had a very high fever. The other musician who she didn't come to play for us at the time, but she was playing with the VSO, was Nicola Benedetti. And I got a call from her manager one Saturday night at nine o'clock saying, please, can you go down to the hotel? Nicola is very ill and I think she needs to go to the hospital because she had a fever of 104 or something. Anyway, oh God, these things happen. They sure do. Next question is, I know this is completely unfair because obviously many of the performers you presented over the years are very good friends of yours, but could you maybe give us a handful of recitals that really, really stick out? Yeah, easy. Well, first of all, Andras. Secondly, Cecilia. And you know, I'll tell you one story about Cecilia, which is not generally known, but it was the high point of everything. I had persuaded Mario Bernardi, because in the good old days of the CBC Orchestra, well, it really wasn't it sort of the same as the opera orchestra? Were there similarities in the personnel? I mean, that orchestra, especially at that time, was made up largely of opera and some VSO players. Yeah. Yes. So anyway, he agreed. And Cecilia came here, I think it was 1990 or 92, I can't remember. It was a leap year, and her concert was on February the 29th, which, of course, is a Rossini birthday, okay? And she was singing Mozart and Rossini. So she arrived in Vancouver, and I took her to Granville Island. Leon and I took her to Granville Island on the Sunday, and she had her hair tied back in a ponytail, and she was wearing a big sort of ski jacket thing and jeans, and somebody came up to her and said, oh, are you Cecilia Bartoli? And she said, si, si, si. And the woman said, oh, I'm looking forward to your concert on Tuesday. And she said, thank you. And the woman walked away and Cecilia started jumping up and down like a five-year-old saying, oh, they know me, they know me, they know me here. Anyway, Monday morning, we go to Studio One downstairs at the CBC for the first rehearsal. She was again wearing her ponytail, big jacket, no makeup, jeans, sneakers. So the first piece to rehearse on the program was Voike Sepeti. 
And Mario started and Cecilia saying, why? And his baton flew out of his hand. And the orchestra members started applauding just from that one syllable. And at the intermission, all the musicians were lined up at the telephone to tell their spouses to come to the concert the next night. It was a moment of, ex anyway, so Julia, the other one we were very, very lucky to get here was Gregory Sokolov, who unfortunately, it only happened figuratively. He burst the roof of the playhouse. I mean, playing Prokofiev. I was at that recital the first time he came, yes. and the first half was the Schubert Moment Musical. I'll never forget that concert. Exactly. I'd never heard of him. And then this guy walked out, and I remember thinking it almost looked like they let him out of some place. Like, you know, yes. not that kind of the sparkly, vogue artist. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that was amazing. The other one who also in his first concert here was dazzling. It was in November. Also, and Sokolov was November, was the first performance of a teenage Maxim Vengerov. He also played Prokofiev. <laughs> I said November is Prokofiev month at the Playhouse. So he was wonderful. And then I love Jean Guillain Queras. I mean, it's what can I say? Over the 40 years, I mean, how many concerts do you think you've produced? Is it a thousand? Is it? I don't have a clue. And then another one that was, oh my God, you want to know how lucky I am when I say the VRS has a God? I can't remember what year it was. I should have looked it up. It was the first year we brought Yevgeny Kissin to Vancouver. And his concert was on September the 27th at the Orpheum. I was there. Yeah, I remember that as well. We put the tickets on sale. I mean, we said to our subscribers, you can have first access and a discount to tickets to Kissin. Our subscriptions went on sale and we sold only about 250 tickets to the concert. And I'm, it's coming to June now, we've sold 275, July 283-ish, and I'm walking around Vancouver saying, I hate this city. This is <laughs> gonna be the first city in the whole world that he hasn't ever sold out. And what's the matter with these Vancouverites? And I was just beside myself. And then two things happened. One is the New Yorker magazine hit the stands around the 20th of August. And the big center story was all about Kissin. And the tickets started to move. The next thing that happened was his management called me and said, He's having visa problems. He needs to get a special visa for the States. And it's usually just been renewed every three years. But for some reason, the US consulate in London has said he has to come in for an interview. And the first interview he can have is three months from now. But he said, you know, his tour is less than one month away. And we tried to get him a consulate appointment in Montreal. The only consulate that can put him in is Vancouver, and you'll have to come five days early. And I said, fantastic. So he came to Vancouver five days early. We found a place for him to stay. He was at the flat practicing every day. He came with his mother and his music teacher. He did all kinds of interviews, and we sold stage seats and everything sold up. Now, 
that wasn't my doing. You know, I had no control of that. It comes back to it that luck favors the brave. And yeah, 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 that's amazing. One of your major supporters, sponsors, friends over the years has also been one of Vancouver operas. And of course, I'm talking about Martha Lou Henley, Louie, to all of her friends. She's a very humble and private person. And I know that she listens to all of these podcasts. She's told me on on numerous occasions. So I, I know she won't like this, but I would love it if you could talk a little bit about her. Oh, absolutely. I've often referred to her as Vancouver St. Cecilia, the patron of music, without whom so many of our enterprises would never have taken flight. I know that you're very close to Louis. Would you mind sharing a few words? You know, it's for me, it's very hard to talk about Louis without tearing up. I mean, she is the St. Cecilia, and she's very undemonstrative, and she hates to have her name in the spotlight. And... And I get all that, and none of us will ever change her. But, you know, these wonderful things that she does for music organizations in Vancouver are the tip of the iceberg. I mean, she supports other causes as well, both financially, but the other thing about her that is just extraordinary is the other kind of help and support she gives. She cooks for people. She bakes for people. She's always there for people. I mean, she is the most giving, remarkable, unbelievably extraordinary human being I can say I've ever met. I mean, Luis kept the VRS going. She's kept the opera going. We all know, but in so many more ways than handing a check. When we move office, she's there with lunch for everybody. She's just five steps ahead of everyone else. And she's so quiet about it. And she's so undemanding. And actually, it's funny. I'm just reading a book now, which is the autobiography of Jesse Norman. And Louis decided she wanted to read it, but she discovered it was out of print. Did you know it's out of print? I did not know that. Well, I don't know what kind of a trip she went on, but she managed to find a copy. And it actually came from the Washington Public Library. And she's read it and she's loaned it to me and I'm reading it at the moment. And it's an absolutely astonishing book. And, you know, none of us thought about at the time. I mean, you think about Jessie Norman, her presence, and that she experienced such racism, both in the United States and in Europe. It's it's what a world we live in. Yeah, how true. But thank God there are Martha Lou Henleys in this world who feel very deeply about things. And, you know, what, what can one... It's very hard to describe a great performance in words. It's equally difficult to describe Martha Henry. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Looking ahead, tell us what we have to look forward to. Yes, our season is booked. The plan was to start in January, but now it looks as though we can start in October. And so uh, we start with the Danish String Quartet, who's doing a project with us over three years. They're playing Schubert quartets and they've commissioned works from different composers to go with the Schubert and we're one of the co-commissioners. 
We are bringing two artists we lost, two pianists. So this season coming up, Jerry Finley is coming. Joseph Jakub Olinsky, the countertenor, is coming. And Kissen is coming again. And Yuja Wang is coming. And Milos and Avi Avital and Stephen Osborne and, oh, Mishka Rushdie Merman, who is the niece of Salman Rushdie, who's a wonderful young pianist in London. She's coming. Oh, wow. And we have two cellists, Nicholas Alstadt, who's never been here before. He's quite remarkable. And it's a wonderful season. Wow, that's incredible. It's an embarrassment of riches. I mean, when I think, too, that you started your first season had five events. Yes. I mean, that's, well, talk about growth and success. That's amazing. Well, kudos to you. I thank you on behalf of Vancouver Rights for just the incredible concert experiences that you've created for us over the last four decades. And it sounds like next season is very exciting and we wish you all the success in the world. Thanks for also letting us know that Andras Schiff will be back in 22. Yes. So that's not that far away. No, it's not that far away. And I very much look forward to that and your upcoming season. So thank you so much, Lila. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much, Les. And I hope you have a wonderful summer and a wonderful next season. Take care. Thanks. Same to you. As this is the final podcast of the season, I'd like to express my appreciation to all of you, our listeners and supporters, for tuning in this season. I'd also like to thank my partner in crime, Vincent Wong, who did all of the engineering on making these episodes come to life. And I wish him all the best. Vincent's moving on to an exciting new chapter in his life, and we'll miss him at VO. So thank you, Vincent, for everything you've done. And on behalf of myself, Vincent, and the entire team at Vancouver Opera, thank you all for listening to this season. Stay tuned for exciting news in the following weeks about Vancouver Opera's exciting 2021-22 season. Sign up for Vancouver Opera's e-newsletter at vancouveropera.ca. Follow Vancouver Opera on social media and communicate with us at online at vancouveropera.ca. This is host Les Dallas signing off, and we'll see you soon on and off the stage.